Hope is one of the keys to thriving in Babylon. Now, hope does not mean uh, wishful thinking, um, like uh, I hope you have uh, a great day, or I hope you get a good grade on your test. Uh, Biblical hope is a deep-seated confidence in God's uh, character and in his sovereignty. Uh, The Apostle Paul calls the return of Jesus our blessed hope. He writes to Titus, a young pastor that he was mentoring, and he said, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul here doesn't mean that we hope Jesus is coming back the way uh, we hope that our favorite NFL team is going to win the Super Bowl uh, this year. He means that we are so certain that Jesus is going to return, that it becomes the organizing principle of our lives. It influences all of our priorities, our moral standards, and even our willingness to be persecuted uh, for his name. Uh, Barbara Kingsolver uh, writes, the very least you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside of that hope, not admire it from a distance, but live right in it under its, its roof. Uh, The Apostle Peter uses uh, the word hope in the same way in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and with respect. Now, Peter is not suggesting that we compile a a set of reasons uh, why we're hopeful that Jesus might be the Messiah. He's challenging us to be ready to explain why we are absolutely certain that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, hope starts with a simple step of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Each time we trust God enough to do what he says and he comes through for us, it builds our hope. Uh, In Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, Daniel writes, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of uh, Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now he writes this so calmly. You say, wow, Daniel uh, really had it together. Here he's living this wonderful life uh, uh, among the upper classes of Jerusalem. He's got it all going for him. Uh, As a young man, he's got his whole life in front of him. And now this foreign army comes and tears him, burns down his home city of Jerusalem and grabs him and his friends and takes them hundreds of miles away into exile into Babylon. And yet he sounds so cold, uh, so cool and calm. Uh, the Lord delivered. The Lord's behind all of this. But you got to remember, Daniel, the book of Daniel, is not a diary. 
Uh, it's a book written after a long life of serving God. Most likely Daniel wrote this in his 80s and his 90s, looking back over his life. And now looking back over his life, I'm sure when he was a young man, uh, he was in turmoil. He was terrified. He was traumatized by what happened. But now as an old man, looking back over his life, he can see that God's hand was behind everything that was going on. But it all started for Daniel as a young adult. And any of you young adults, it starts for you right here uh, when he was about 20 years old, learning to trust God step by step in his early years. And you young adults uh, that, are, that are watching, I encourage you, learn to trust him early on to begin to take those steps and your faith, your hope will build like a muscle, uh, that ever increasing weight on it as God puts you through tests and he comes through through for you. Your hope will build uh, like it did for Daniel. It was kind of like starting college, and historians tell us that some of the courses that uh, Daniel and his friends would have taken at the University of Babylon would have been things like agriculture, uh, architecture, astronomy, law, mathematics, and the very difficult uh, Akkadian language that they would have had to have learned uh, to be a part of Babylon, Babylonian uh, leadership. And so we pick up the story now in verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, Daniel was the Hebrew name, which means God is my judge. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They forced him to change it to the Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince, a prince of this foreign idol god, demonic, occultic god of the Babylonians. And then Hananiah means God has shown me grace, is forced to change it to the command of Shadrach, the command of Aku, which was the moon god of the Babylonians. And then the next one is Mishael. Uh, that was his Hebrew name, which meant who is what God is. Who is what God is. They forced him to change it to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. Aku being another Babylonian god. And then Azariah in the Hebrew, uh, this meant God has helped me. But they forced him to change it to servant of Nego, which was a, Nego was another uh, Babylonian god. And so for all of them, like we said a couple of Sundays ago, it was like changing your name from Christian to Satan's prince or Satan's servant or under the command of Satan. Now this food and wine from the king's table that's going to be the issue here, it's not just that it wasn't kosher food from a Jewish diet. 
Uh, this food would have been offered up to one of the Babylonian gods, uh, like Marduk or like Nebo or uh, Ishtar. It would have been offered up to these uh, demonic, occultic Babylonian gods in honor of them before it would be served to them. And there would have been tremendous peer pressure from the other students for uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, to give in and to eat this food. There would have been tremendous pressure uh, from their teachers. I'm sure they argued among themselves. It says that Daniel was the first one that resolved. So maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would argue with Daniel. They would argue saying, look, we can't let this stupid little hang up about Jewish diet and Jewish ceremony, we can't let this stupid little hang up keep us us from tremendous positions of power. And they would have rationalized it. They would have said, you know, if we just give in on this little thing, it's going to give us all kinds of influence. Think of all the good we can do for God if we get into those positions of influence and power. Let's just compromise in this little area uh, for the means uh, to justify uh, the end. But Gleason Archer writes, he says, by their early refusal to disobey God, they prepared, by their early refusal to disobey God, they prepared themselves for future greatness as true witnesses for the one true God in the midst of a degenerate pagan culture. And so it goes on to say in verse 8, uh, three very powerful words. But Daniel resolved. But Daniel resolved. Young adults, uh, those of you that are teenagers or in your 20s or even 30s, those words will change your life. Daniel, as a young man of, of 20, he said, I resolve to obey God even in the little things. And that opened doors, like Gleason Archer said, it opened doors to greatness, to blessing, to feeling like the wind of God was behind you, filling your sails uh, for the remainder of your life, rather than the wind being in your face and holding you back, the wind being behind you. But Daniel resolved. And you as young adults, I challenge you with those three words. Make a resolution to be serious about God at an early age like Daniel, and you will reap the blessing as the years go by. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine that had been offered up to those idols like I just talked about. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion uh, to Daniel. Uh, verse 10, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, since the law of Moses said that no vegetables were unclean, Daniel could eat any vegetables that they were, would put before him to eat without defiling himself. He knew that vegetables were safe because in the law of Moses and the dietary laws of the Jewish people, vegetables were completely kosher. Vegetables were completely uh, clean. And so he knew he could trust himself with just vegetables and water. Then compare our appearance with that of the other young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, 
They looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And so they obeyed God in what was seemingly a little thing, and God blessed them in big things. They obeyed in the little things, so God gave them bigger challenges that came later on, like the fiery furnace for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like the lion's den that we talked about last Sunday uh, for Daniel. Uh, This is what Larry Osborne calls the dimmer switch principle. The dimmer switch, you know how like you have in, in your house maybe a dimmer switch that gradually increases the light or decreases the light? He says, when we obey the light that we have, God will not only show up but he'll give us more light. When we obey the light that we have, God gives us more. But when we ignore the light that we have, God gives us less. And then there's what I like to call the knowing how the story ends principle. The knowing how the story ends principle. When you know how things end in the future, you will have hope in in the present. When you know how things end in the future, you have hope in the present. Uh, One of my uh, good friends is Tom Mercer. He's the pastor of the High Desert Church up in Victorville. Uh, They have campuses all across uh, the High Desert. And on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, in a couple of days, uh, Tom and I are going to be leading and speaking on a webinar for Transformation Ministries called Leadership in Uncertain Times. And we'll be speaking together on that topic, Leadership in Uncertain Times. And uh, my friend Tom is just a huge sports fan. He particularly loves the Lakers, the Dodgers, and UCLA. But he rarely watches a live sports event on TV. here's, Here's what Tom does. He tapes any UCLA game, he tapes any Lakers game, any Dodgers game, and then when it's over, he finds out the score. And if they lost the game, he doesn't bother to watch the tape. But if they won the game, then he'll watch it because he doesn't want to waste his time watching them losing. He only wants to invest time if they're going to win in the end. And that's exactly what it is to follow Jesus. You've read the final page of the Bible. You've read the book of Revelation. You've read the last page of the Bible. And God wins in the end. And those who follow him win in the end. And that's how we live our lives. When you know how things are going to end in the future, you have this tremendous hope Uh, in the present. Uh, When you let God write your story, you know that it's going to have a happily, lives happily ever after. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in heaven. I love this, uh, what Marshall Shelley wrote called The Author Knows the End of the Story. He writes, even as a child, I loved to read, and I quickly learned that I would most likely be confused during the opening chapters of a novel. New characters were introduced. Disparate, seemingly random events took place. Subplots were complicated and didn't seem to make any sense in relation to the main plot. But I learned to keep reading. Why? 
Because you know that the author, if he or she is good, will weave them all together by the end of the book. Eventually, each element will be meaningful. At times, such faith has to be a conscious choice. Even when I can't explain why any bad, tragic, or painful thing occurs, I choose to trust that before the book closes, the author will make things clear. And that's the way it is if you hand the pen of your life to God and say, God, you write my story rather than me write my story. And then we know we can have hope in the present because we know that the story will end well uh, in the future. But the key is to hand God the pen and let him write the story instead of us. I, I know for myself, I make a mess of my story when I write it myself. But when I, by faith, hand the pen to God, then he writes the story, and it'll turn out well in the end, if not in this life, or years from now, or, or even days from now, uh, certainly in eternity, it's gonna turn out well in the end. And I wanna give you a chance to do that right now. I, I want you to hand the pen of your life over to God. You say, Glenn, how do I go about doing that? Three phrases. Uh, one is sorry, the next is thank you, and then please. First of all, I say to God, God, I am sorry that the chapters I've written so far in my life, I, I have, uh, have been displeasing to you and have hurt other people. When I write chapters on my own, I tend to hurt the people around me and I tend to dishonor and displease God. I'm sorry. Thank you, God, that Jesus came into the world. He wrote the perfect story, the only perfect story anybody's ever written. And then he died on a cross. He died instead of me, and he rose from the grave. And because of his story, I can be forgiven for my story. So sorry, uh, thank you, and then please. God, would you please take the pen of my life and write the remainder of my story because your story always ends up perfectly with me in heaven with you for eternity. So right now, wherever you are watching, you can just simply, in a quiet moment right now, uh, pray with me. Oh God, I'm sorry for how I've written my story so far. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect story. And now please take the pen of my life. I hand it to you. Will you forgive me and will you now lead me and write my story for me? And I pray this in Jesus' name. And if you agree with me, wherever you're watching right now, would you say with me, uh, amen. Uh, Larry Osborne writes, the lens of faith is the key to seeing clearly when all hell breaks loose. It's the only way to make sense out of the senseless. And it's the only way to respond properly when obedience no longer seems to be working. Are we going to interpret and respond to our current circumstances through the lens of faith? Or are we going to interpret our God through the lens of our current reality? Do we interpret God through the lens of our current reality? Or instead, do we interpret and respond to our current circumstances through the lens of faith that God is in control and that we can trust him if we turn things uh, over to him? Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. writes, we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. Desmond Tutu wrote, hope is being able to see that there is light despite 
all of the darkness. And then Johnny Erickson Tata, who in a tragic diving accident when she was a young girl uh, became paralyzed. Uh, despite uh, the hard life she's had, she writes, the best we can hope for in this life is a not whole peek at the shining realities ahead. Yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to with that which awaits us over the horizon. Now, Satan is a liar, and he will keep telling us that there is no hope. Let me repeat that. Satan is a liar, and he's always going to be whispering in your ear and in my ear that there is no hope. Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him, in Satan. When Satan lies, he speaks his native language. When Satan talks, he always lies because that's his native language. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And he's constantly whispering in your ear and in my ear the lie that there is no hope in our situation. Uh, Matthew 16, verse 18, I love it in the old King James translation. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I have misunderstood that verse for years and years and years. Because when I, when I think about that verse, I think about Jesus and me in the bunker, uh, huddled down, um, almost like being in a, a tornado shelter. If you've ever lived in the Midwest or in the East, you know, you have tornadoes. And I remember that my grandparents at their farm in Upper Peninsula, Michigan, there used to be tornadoes would come by sometimes. And they had this uh, cellar built into a hill where they kept the potatoes uh, for storage. But it also served as a tornado shelter. And one day a tornado came through when we were visiting uh, from uh, where we lived in Virginia. And we all tried to run into the tornado shelter. And the whole idea is uh, Satan gives us his best and he hits us. And we just hunker down with Jesus in the tornado shelter. And then when we come out of it, there's devastation everywhere. But somehow, some way, we survived. That is a total misrepresentation of that verse. You see, anybody when Jesus wrote this would remember or would realize that gates are a defensive weapon. They are not an offensive weapon. Satan doesn't take the gates of hell and, and goes and beats us over the head with us. No, we're on offense, he's on defense. See, the way I always looked at that verse is, we're on defense and Satan is just attacking us and he's on offense and we just try to protect ourselves from him. No, no, no. What Jesus meant here when he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail, is that we're on the offense. When we've got Jesus in our heart, we are taking down hell. We are attacking hell. We're attacking the gates of hell. And Satan and his minions are huddled behind the gates of hell, terrified when Christians are on the move. And yet, his defense mechanism, the gates of hell, can't 
can't stop us from advancing heaven wherever we go, wherever we work, in our school, here in the city of Pomona, across Southern California, wherever you're watching this, the gates of hell cannot hold back you having heaven in your heart, Jesus in your heart, marching and prevailing against the forces of hell. Now, look at it differently now, don't we? We're on offense. He's the pathetic one on defense, not the other way around. Now, another principle to increase hope is what we call the garbage in, garbage out principle. Uh, that is faulty data produces faulty results. Uh, no matter how powerful our latest computers may be, if we feed them wrong numbers, uh, they spit out wrong answers. Um, are you feeling hopeless right now? Let me just ask you, as, as 2020 goes on, are you feeling hopeless today? Well, let me give you a little bit of a homework assignment. I want to encourage you to take one, a one-week fast from all forms of media. Okay, garbage in, garbage out. For, for one week, take a fast, take a break from all social media, from all um, media media. Uh, just uh, take a fast, avoid all media, and replace the time that you normally spent on different forms of media. Use that for extra time, uh, spending time in God's word. Garbage in, garbage out leads to hopelessness. Uh, good things in, good things come out, leads to hope. Uh, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, uh, and the, the Philippi was in the nation of what is today Greece. They're called the Philippians. And he writes to them and says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Uh, goes on to verse 9. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace, he'll give you hope, he'll give you peace, will be with you if we put the right things uh, into our mind. Uh, the God of peace will be with you. Ultimately, it's not our circumstances uh, that determine our outlook. It's not our circumstances that determine our outlook. It's the way we interpret our circumstances that determines our outlook. Now, with the few minutes we have left, I just want us to look at three hope killers, three things that kill hope. The first one is catastrophizing, uh, where we just run from one uh, catastrophe uh, to the next, one fearful, uh, killing our hope catastrophe uh, to the next one. And the media makes a catastrophe out of everything. The media makes a catastrophe out of everything. Now, I don't, I don't blame them because catastrophes sell advertising, okay? Catastrophes get people to read, get them to watch, get them to look, and that feeds advertising money and their business is selling advertising. So the media is gonna sell catastrophes because that's how they make money. But here's the thing, we don't have to buy into it. 
Just because they're catastrophizing doesn't mean that we have to enter into their uh, catastrophe. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. How many of you um, remember, and, and this will be people that are either my age or, or maybe even you know, 20 or 30 years younger than me. The youngest won't remember this, but I bet you people of a certain age will remember this. How many of you uh, remember the end of 1999 when we were terrified of something called Y2K? Wherever you're watching right now, just raise your hand if you remember Y2K. Those of you that are younger are like, oh, what was that all about? Well, people claimed that there was a Y2K bug, that computers would not be able to, around the world, all around the world, computers would not be able to handle switching from the year 1999 to the year 2000. So they claimed that the Y2K bug would be the mother of all computer glitches. Uh, elevators would get stuck. Uh, cars would be stalling. Uh, airplanes would be crashing. Nuclear plants would be melting down. Uh, many feared that it would usher in a worldwide economic uh, crisis. Uh, people said uh, that President Clinton, who was the president at that time, but coming to the end of his eight years as president, uh, people said that President Clinton was going to exploit the resulting chaos and crisis by imposing martial law and installing him as president for life. Well, what was the result of Y2K? <laughs> The BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, reported that in the entire world, the, the entire world, here was the net total effect of Y2K. 150 slot machines at racetracks in the United States in the state of Delaware stopped working for about two hours. That was the complete effect of Y2K 150 slot machines at racetracks in Delaware stopped, couldn't handle switching from 1999 to 2000, but they were able to fix it uh, just a couple of hours later. But I can't tell you how much time Christians wasted getting distracted by Y2K, distracted from our primary mission of everyone everywhere following Jesus, of going to heaven and taking our oikos with us. How much time was wasted that couldn't then be invested in the number one mission that God gave, us, gave to us? Now, I'm not pointing fingers. Can I just say something I'm so embarrassed about? In my 40 years as a pastor, I think this is probably what I'm the most embarrassed about. I actually did a sermon series on Y2K, all right? So I'm not point, pointing any fingers. Me too, but as Larry Osborne would say, life is too short and hell is too hot to waste time on such nonsense. Life is too short and hell is too hot to waste time on such nonsense. And yet so many times we just move from catastrophe to catastrophe, forgetting the last words of Jesus before he went back to heaven. He said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And Paul wrote to the followers of Jesus in Corinth and the nation of Greece. He said to the Corinthians, no temptation. And in the original Greek, temptation can mean testing uh, or temptation. It can mean e either one. So no testing has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. 
And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or, in the original Greek, tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. He's, he's with us to the end of the age. There's no temptation or test that we face that with his help, he will not provide a way of escape out of it. So avoid catastrophizing because it kills our hope. Number two is myopia. Myopia is nearsightedness. This is where you see things up close, but you can't see things far away. There's a guy in the Bible by the name of Asaph who had spiritual myopia. He could see clearly what was right in front of him, but he couldn't see what God was doing off in the distance. He could see right in front of him what people were doing, but he couldn't see beyond the, the scenes. He couldn't see beyond the obvious in the distance or underneath the surface what God was up to. He couldn't see far. He could only see near. He had spiritual myopia. And I'm just going to read the psalm that he wrote, Psalm 73. It's 28 verses long. And the first 14 verses, he has spiritual myopia. But then, all of a sudden, exactly half, of 14, verse 14, verse 15, the, the, the second half of this psalm, all of a sudden, he gets his farsightedness back again. He, he's just absorbed with near, near, the stuff that's nearby. Then he gets, just, gets a glimpse. He has a change of heart. God helps him see what's going on behind the scenes. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence all day long. I have been afflicted, and every morning brings me new punishments. But then all of a sudden, God gives him insight. He's able to see far and not just near. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by tears. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant and was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. 
I will tell of all of your, your deeds. You know, it's like the way sometimes we misrepresent following Jesus. And if I've done this to you, please forgive me as, as your pastor. But, but sometimes a, a, a new believer will come to us and we'll kind of sell them a false bill of goods. It's like a, a young person comes to you and, and says, hey, I'm gonna take an air flight. I'm gonna fly from LA to New York City. And I say to him, hey, you know, here's a parachute. And wear this parachute, and if you wear this parachute on your whole trip, your whole flight from L.A. to New York City, it's going to be more fun, it's going to be more comfortable, you'll make more friends, it'll be awesome. So, um, the young man puts his parachute on, and he's sitting there in the plane, and as it goes on, the flight goes on and on, his back hurts, and he's sweaty and itchy, and that stupid parachute is uncomfortable, and the worst part is people are staring at him because he's wearing a parachute on the plane, and, and people are beginning to talk and, and laugh at him. So halfway through the flight, he says, you know what, Glenn sold me a false bill of goods. I'm taking this parachute off. This is stupid. It doesn't make my flight better. Now, imagine if instead I said to that young man, wear this parachute, and I want to tell you why you need to hang on to it for dear life, because somewhere halfway across the country, somewhere over Kansas or Nebraska, your plane is going to crash. And the only people that are going to survive that plane crash are those who have parachutes. Now he clings to it. He doesn't care if it's uncomfortable. He doesn't care if it makes him hot and sweaty. He doesn't care if people stare at him or laugh at him. He's hanging on to that parachute for dear life. And so sometimes we'll tell new Christians, we'll say, hey, following Jesus is just awesome. It's just going to be so much fun. It is a blast. Here, take the parachute of Jesus. And then when life tends to be hard, and sometimes it's not so awesome, and sometimes it's very difficult to follow Jesus, no wonder sometimes young Christians take the parachute off because you know what? It didn't improve my life, and it didn't make things easier. But if I say to that young Christian, hang on to Jesus with all of your might because you know what? This life, this world is going down in a crash and the only people that will survive and that will be spared hell and will escape hell and the only ones that will spend eternity with God in heaven forever and ever are those that hang on for dear life to the parachute of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. You hang on to Jesus. You let God write the story of your life, and then things will turn out well in the end. But if you're writing your own story, or if you're not hanging on to Jesus, uh, uh, it, it will not turn out well in the end. You cling to him with all that you have. And then the third hope uh, killer is amnesia. We lose hope in the present, because we forget what God has done for us in the past. We lose hope in our present because we forget, we have amnesia, spiritual amnesia, of what God has done for us in the past. Now don't feel bad, the disciples had spiritual amnesia. In uh, Mark chapter eight, Jesus asked them, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why were you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts uh, hardened? Uh, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail uh, to hear? And don't you remember, don't you remember, do you have spiritual amnesia 
when I broke the five loaves of, for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when you broke the seven loaves for the 4,000 people, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, well, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? And God wants to say that to us when we lose hope. Do you still not understand whatever you're going through? God invited you. You're not watching this by accident. He invited you here to tell you, remember, I've come through in the past. I've got this. As I had hold of it, as I had it in the past, I've got whatever you're going through now and in the future as well. Here's the antidote to spiritual amnesia, practicing the discipline of gratitude, the habit of regularly giving thanks for all that God has done. There's that old hymn that says, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And when you remember what he has done for you in the past, it will give you hope in the present and for the future. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, give thanks in all, in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, I pray that in some small way this will encourage my church family that I love so very much to, to have hope. The only way we survive and thrive in the Babylon of this culture that is uh, many times anti-God or post-Christian or non-Christian, the only way we survive and thrive is to have hope. And so, Lord, I pray that you will transform us, transform us in the way we look at life, in the way we live our lives, transform us with your living hope. Give us hope today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.